everybody. Welcome to Heologics Podcast number three. I'm Drew Cutler, and I'm with my colleague, Michael Galvin. Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to us. We're very glad you were able to join us here. And today, we'd like to talk about oncologists, who are often who we talk to when we do market research, who we interview. So, Michael, I'll let you start. Give us, please, a sense of some of the distinctions that are made amongst oncologists. When our clients ask us to speak with oncologists, they usually mean they want us to talk to physicians who practice one of two related specialties. So on the one hand, we have medical oncologists, and on the other, we have hematologist oncologists. They differ somewhat, although not to a tremendous extent, in terms of their orientation, the kinds of tumors they treat, and what kinds of patients they see. And I would add that hematologists, oncologists, hemonks, as we call them for short, do require additional training to become board certified. But as Michael was saying, these audiences, these types of physicians do see a considerable overlap in terms of patient types. Both of these oncologist types usually treat a wide range of both solid and liquid tumors. And I think there is some misconception out there that there is a sharp distinction between hematologist oncologists and medical oncologists, when in fact, at least in my experience, there's more overlap than there is difference. There are, however, a few notable differences that are, are worth mentioning. One is that there are certain diseases that tend to be treated only by hematologist oncologists, and here I'm thinking primarily of acute leukemias, uh, which people who have training in medical oncology may not treat. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And although hemonks and medonks are the most common types of oncologists, there are certainly several other types as well that are less common. Uh, perhaps the next most common, at least from my perspective as a market researcher, might be the pediatric oncologists. Now, pedonks, at least the ones that, that I've talked with, usually work at a pediatric cancer center. And unlike their hemonc and medonc colleagues, they work often as part of a, a multidisciplinary team at the center. There are very few, at least in my experience, very few standalone pediatric oncologists who work in more of a traditional community-based setting. And I've discovered in, in the time that I've spent talking with pediatric oncologists that there's a couple of other notable differences as well. My impression is that pediatric cancer patients are much more likely to be treated as part of a clinical trial than adult oncology patients would be. And, of course, the kinds of diseases that pediatric oncologists treat are, are different from their adult counterparts. Uh, there, are, there are certain diseases that one sees only in children, um, and even those diseases that do occur both in children and adults, and I'm thinking primarily of of acute lymphoblastic leukemia here, they're treated differently in kids versus adults because the disease behaves differently and because the kids can withstand uh, more intensive treatment than older patients could. Agreed. It really is, in a sense, a different ballgame when it comes to pediatric oncology. And as some of you may not be aware, pediatric cancers are, generally speaking, more treatable. There's a better prognosis for several pediatric cancers than for adults with the same cancers. And as horrible as cancer is in anybody, especially in a child, 
uh, at least the prognosis often is better and the parents can take some comfort in knowing that. There are a few other types of oncologists as well. As you know, Michael, there are surgical oncologists and radiation oncologists. But frankly, at least in the research I've done, I haven't encountered these audiences very often. It's, it's usually medonks, hemonks, and pedonks that, that I've spoken with. Well, I have spoken with radiation oncologists and surgical oncologists in the past. But by and large, the people that I talk to are medical oncologists, hemonks, and, and very occasionally pedonks. And that has to do with who our clients are. We generally work on behalf of pharmaceutical companies who have an interest in understanding the way patients are treated medically. And in the United States and in most countries at least, that kind of treatment is usually, although not always, handled by a medical oncologist or a hematologist oncologist. Another distinction that can be drawn within the oncologist community is whether they're based in a community setting or an academic setting. And I think here, again, there may be some misconceptions that it's black and white, that either an oncologist is an academic or a community oncologist, whereas, at least in my experience, it's really more of a spectrum there are some oncologists who are heavily focused in the academic world and do a lot of research and spend relatively less time seeing patients. And then on the other end of the spectrum, again, in my experience, there are oncologists who are very much oriented towards seeing patients and work in a community-based setting and have little or no role in research. That is consistent with my experience. Of course, it depends on how we define academic versus community because there are plenty of physicians who might have a clinical appointment at a medical school or at a, at a university who wouldn't necessarily qualify under a stricter definition as being academic. That is, they're not employed by the university. Uh, they don't spend a lot of time doing research, although they have access to research protocols at the university. Uh, and there's another gray area, of course, as the business of medicine shifts in the United States and university health systems buy up community practices. You could potentially be an employee of a university or a university medical center, but practice as a community physician if you work in a community clinic that's owned by the university. Yes, and I think one thing that is particularly interesting, to me at least, is the physicians, the oncologists who work in comprehensive cancer centers, the National Cancer Institute Comprehensive Cancer Centers. There's about 50 such centers in the United States and uh, very well-known, uh, for example, Memorial Sloan, Kettering would be one example, Dana-Farber, Fox Chase, or a few other examples where these oncologists often work or usually work, in fact, as part of a multidisciplinary team for patients who come in and seek treatment at these centers. And these oncologists uh, are some of the, the best or at least most renowned in the country. They often are what we call key opinion leaders uh, who have an expertise that, that may exceed that of, of their peers and colleagues in, in the community. One of the things that I think is also worth mentioning about academic versus community oncologists is that academic oncologists, in my experience, and Drew, feel free to correct me if you disagree, are more likely to specialize in one or 
to or a series of closely related tumors than oncologists in the community are. So we're often asked to find lung treaters or find treaters in various cancers as, as part of a research project. And sometimes our clients may not realize that these are often the same people, and it's only within the context of the university that you'll find a subspecialist in lung cancer or in colorectal cancer or liver cancer, thyroid cancer, leukemia. That's so true. The degree of specialization tends to be higher in, in academia, as you said, Michael, and in the community. Typically, the oncologist will be uh, jacks or jills of all trades, and we'll see a variety of solid and liquid tumors like, like we talked about earlier. I think another interesting thing is how different things can be when you start to look at how things are set up in, for example, Europe, where, at least, again, in my experience, there tends to be a higher proportion of oncologists with academic affiliations than there is in the United States, and also, congruently with what you just said, Michael, there tends to be a, a higher degree of, of specialization uh, that oncologists have in certain tumor types. And it's also worth mentioning that outside of the United States, with few exceptions, hematology and medical oncology are separate specialties. So outside of the U.S., the distinction between treating blood cancers or liquid tumors and treating solid tumors, uh, cancers of other organs, is, is much more distinct. Uh, the exception is Germany, in my experience, where hematology, oncology does exist. Um, and the other way in which Germany is an exception to many of the other places we work outside the U.S. is that in Germany, as in the U.S., you may find oncologists operating out of outpatient clinics or out of private offices, Whereas elsewhere, including other oncologists and hematologists in Germany, these positions tend to be attached to a hospital of one sort or another, academic, as you mentioned, or they may be part of what we would consider here in the U.S. a community hospital, a, a district general hospital, for example, in the United Kingdom. And speaking of the United Kingdom, I think another thing that we should point out to the listener is how in certain countries, and particularly the United Kingdom comes to mind, oncologists' hands are, are tied by the health system in that country. The NHS in the United Kingdom has very strict requirements about what they can prescribe and when. And the latitude that American oncologists enjoy uh, in terms of prescribing uh, is not shared by the United Kingdom oncologists because of the strictures of, of the health system over there. One other unique case that is worth mentioning is Japan, where until recently medical oncology did not exist as a specialty. Instead, cancers were, and often still are, treated by the body part specialist. So lung cancers would be treated by pulmonologists or thoracic surgeons, colorectal cancer by gastroenterologists or abdominal surgeons, and so forth. Unlike medical oncologists, these body part specialists may not be aware of therapies or medications that are used to treat other tumors outside of their specialty. 
That's a good point, Michael. I think things are starting to change in Japan, and there are now some quote-unquote oncologists in Japan. But yes, up till very recently, like you say, it's been by body part that cancers are treated in, in Japan. One thing also that I think is worth touching on is is an audience that I mentioned briefly in passing a few minutes ago, the, the key opinion leader. These are the oncologists who are seen as at the top of the field because of their publishing engagements, their speaking engagements, their clinical trial experience, and their general knowledge and experience with particular cancers. And there's gray area in terms of who is a key opinion leader, uh, but those tend to be the criteria that identify who we, for market research purposes, include in key opinion leader studies. Well, in my experience, for the most part, these are people that really only treat one or two malignancies, and they treat a lot of those patients. And it's a very different conversation that we have with them uh, simply because of their greater degree of expertise, but also their greater degree of specialization. And they're certainly much more aware of the data and of products in early phase development than even an ordinary academic oncologist or hematologist might be. Indeed they are. And they do tend to be academic oncologists rather than community-based, although there are exceptions. But of course, there's no specific definition of a key opinion leader that everybody is going to agree on. So one person's key opinion leader may not be another's. But there is consensus, generally speaking, within specific cancers as to who the KOLs are, at least in my experience. And in mine as well. Let's talk, Michael, if, if we may, about age of oncologists that we talk with. For me, at least as a market researcher, it, it makes a big difference when I'm talking with a young or younger oncologist versus somebody who's been in the field for 20 or even 30 years. Before I share my experiences, I'd love to hear yours. Broadly speaking, in my experience, younger oncologists are simply because they're closer to their training and perhaps less set in their ways, uh, a little more likely to be aware of and to jump on the bandwagon of new treatments or new approaches. Uh, they certainly spend a lot of time learning the data, perhaps a little bit less jaded about market research and, and much happier to talk with us as as well, whereas in contrast, older oncologists can draw on a wealth of experience with their patients, certainly have a great deal of interest in talking about new developments in the field because they've seen how rapidly things have changed in this field. Drew, tell me a little bit about your experiences, whether they've been similar or different. I think there has been quite a bit of overlap when I think back to the age of the oncologists I've talked with. To be honest, I prefer talking with the younger oncologists, the ones who are more recently out of medical school, because they are, if I may generalize, they tend to bring a bit more enthusiasm and energy to the discussions than the oncologists who have been doing this for 20 or 30 years. Uh, there are those who have been doing this a long time who show incredible enthusiasm and excitement after all that time and, and do have, as Michael said, a great deal of interest in the newer therapies. But in general, I think the, it's the younger ones who are, in my opinion, more 
open to the newer therapies and, and who are more likely to be using the, the, new, the newer therapies uh, than some of their, their older counterparts. Again, that's a generalization, but I think there is a, a trade-off between the energy and, and the open-mindedness of the younger oncologists versus the experience and the wisdom that their their older counterparts bring. I'd agree with that, and that, of course, is why we always recommend to our clients that we try to, to the best of our ability, to obtain a mix of different ages of the oncologists whom we talk to in any given research project, simply to make sure that we obtain information that reflects the likely range of opinion, orientation, and experience. Exactly. And to add to that, I would mention that also we always recommend a nice geographic mix. So we get oncologists from various parts of the country, the East Coast, the Southwest, the West Coast, the South, the North, the Northwest, because there can be trends by different geographic regions and also, we suggest a mix between urban and suburban and rural to gain, again, perspectives of physicians who work in a wide range of settings, and that then better approximates the entire oncologist universe in the United States. Well put, Drew. Drew and I would like to thank you for listening to our podcast. Uh, we do appreciate your time and your willingness to listen to us, and we'd like to remind you that Helogic's can be reached either online at www.helogix.com, that's H-E-A-L-O-G-I-X, or you can reach us by telephone at 215-830-8360. Thanks again.